All right, so last week we looked at the first part of uh, larger, ca- larger Catechism question 159. We've been talking about the word as a means of grace. This is lesson number six for anyone who's keeping track. And uh, I wouldn't say question 159 was longer than any other questions uh, in the larger catechism, but we took 158 and the first part of 159 last time. So I want to try to finish uh, 159 today. And I'll uh, read it. I hope it's visible there, but I'll go ahead and read it. The question is, how is the word of God to be preached by those that are called thereunto? And the answer is, they that are called to labor in the ministry of the word are to preach sound doctrine diligently, in season and out of season, plainly, not in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, faithfully, making known the whole counsel of God, wisely applying themselves to the necessities and capacities of the hearers, zealously with fervent love to God and the souls of his people, sincerely aiming at his glory and their conversion, edification, and salvation. Just to remind you where we are in the catechism, the question before this was, by whom is the word of God to be preached? And I think that's the the point there in our question today, by those that are called thereunto. So we've already talked about what their qualifications are and um, the gifting from Christ. And now, how is the word of God to be preached? So I'll admit that this may seem a little distant from us because um, I think none of us in this room is actually called to preach the word. Uh, But just to uh, remind you that what's coming after this is how we are to hear the word of God that's preached to us. And um, I think it's important for us to think about what goes into preaching, uh, what uh, the components are, not in the sense of uh, preparation or even presentation so much as uh, the way or how the word is to be preached. You'll notice the catechism question has several adverbs separated by semicolons. So that's the way I'm going to do the outline is by doing that. And last time we talked about the first part that Uh, They are to preach diligently in season and out of season. So I want to pick up uh, there with plainly and, uh, as I said, try to finish this question today. So that's uh, where we are in the study. And uh, if you would please turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. I'd like to open with uh, some thoughts about this passage, which I hope will not only remind us of what we've talked about already, but also... uh, bring out some of the points that we'll be looking at today. So Peter is, uh, toward the end of his letter, uh, he addresses the elders, he says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. So 1 Peter 5, beginning at verse 1, I'll read through verse 4. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now here... Peter speaks to the elders. Uh, This is uh, normally understood to include the ruling elders as well as the teaching elders, but because of the emphasis of our study, I'll I'll highlight uh, how it especially applies to 
those who preach the word, who are called to that ministry. He uh, begins by giving his own qualifications. He calls himself an elder as well. And he says he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, this would be part of his qualification in the sense that he was one of the uh, original apostles. But I want to highlight also something that will be important later in our study today, which is that, uh, you know, the eldership really is so closely connected with the sufferings of Christ, with the crucifixion. It's uh, an important point that he brings out here that shows up in all kinds of ways in which the minister conducts himself. And uh, the whole context is that we serve a Savior who gave himself for us, who suffered uh, for us that we might have life. Now, of course, he doesn't stop there. He also gives his own hope of being a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, and he comes back to that at the, uh, the end of this little section. But his exhortation to them is to shepherd the flock of God, which is among them, serving as overseers. So he actually uses, uh, you might say, three different words uh, to describe what the elders or who the elders are. They're elders, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that they have gray hair or something, but it it indicates uh, uh, some kind of authority and uh, preparation to serve. Uh, But also he calls them to shepherd. This is an important aspect that, it may have been obscured last week when I kept talking about false doctrine and how you have to protect the flock from false doctrine. That's what part of what shepherds do. But shepherds care for the flock. And he highlights that here, that they, they would show compassion on uh, the people to whom they minister as uh, just as a shepherd cares for the sheep. And then he uses another word, uh, overseers. Um, so... Uh, the King James, I'm not sure, may translate that uh, bishop here. It's the, it's the idea of one who, who oversees, as it says here. But I want to especially focus on the, the way in which this is to happen. And this is, again, the conduct of the uh, elder, the overseer, you might say in the whole of life and in the whole of ministry in the church. But I think about this in the context of the preaching of the word especially. So not by compulsion, but willingly. So we talked last week about uh, those who are uh, called to minister uh, the word are called by God. They're gifted by the ascended Christ who pours out gifts by his spirit. And this should be something, therefore, that they enter into willingly and not something that someone forces them to do or, as we talked about, you know, kind of the method of last result, uh, that is the employment of last result. This is something that they should, should engage in willingly. And then he says, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Now, uh, it, in our context, it's hard for us to know how much uh, dishonest gain you can get on a minister's salary. That was supposed to be a joke. Uh, in some cases you can, but uh, obviously what he's calling them to here is uh, not uh, motives which are unfitting to the calling, but motives that correspond to the great work they're called to. And so they should be uh, eager and not seeking for dishonest gain. And then uh, what does it mean to be a shepherd? Does it mean that you're uh, lord over those (laughs) under your care? Well, no, not as lording it over them. Uh, That's not the uh, biblical view of a shepherd or an overseer or an elder. It is uh, being examples to the flock. That is uh, something we talked about last time, that in the biblical qualifications for elders and Titus and Timothy, the emphasis is actually on 
the quality of life and not so much on the ability to teach, although obviously that's filled out uh, later elsewhere. So here the, the call is that the, the ministry should be consistent with the crucified Savior. That is, they should be examples to the flock, showing that they serve uh, one who gave themselves, who gave himself for us. And then it ends with this uh, beautiful uh, encouragement. You know, Peter talked in verse 1 about the glory that will be revealed. And he says, we have a chief shepherd, which is a sobering reminder for every elder. We are under shepherds. He is the chief shepherd. And when he appears, the promise is that uh, those who are faithful will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. So there's an encouragement. It's not it's not dishonest gain, but there is a gain that's promised. And the gain is uh, the, uh, the recognition that when our, our chief shepherd appears, um, uh, the crown of glory will be given to those who serve faithfully. So as I said, I think this is a good review from what we saw before about the qualifications for the ministry, but also is relevant and maybe it'll be more important as we go along or more evident as we go along the connection with the the preaching of the word also. Any uh, comments or questions about that? Okay, so I want to then turn to these these adverbs. The next one is plainly, but let me just point out that if if you look online, you can uh, find in addition to the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, uh, the Westminster Directory for Public Worship, uh, that one of the other documents they prepared. And it has, it has uh, parallel statements to each of these uh, adverbs. It's not quite structured the same way, uh, but if you want to sort of fill out more of what they had in mind, you can look at the Westminster Directory. Our Reformed Presbyterian Directory for Public Worship actually follows uh, that part of the Westminster Directory uh, closely. Uh, it is kind of amusing. The first point that we looked at last week was diligently. And the Westminster Directory, it's, painfully. Uh, So I don't think that means that sermons are supposed to be painful, but rather maybe painstakingly, that is, they should take pains uh, in the work they do. So just uh, how language has changed a little bit in a couple of hundred years or more. All right. So let's then turn to the first of these, which is uh, that uh, the word of God should be preached plainly. So, uh, to introduce the subject, and this is actually the one I plan to spend most of the time on. It may seem a little odd, but I hope it will become apparent as we go along. Um, I thought I would ask you to think um, who the best preacher is you've ever heard as a public speaker. Okay, Not talking about content necessarily or the person, but as a public speaker. So one of the best preachers I've ever heard as a public speaker um, probably top two or three, was uh, when I was in junior high or high school in the mainline church where I grew up, was an associate minister. And after I uh, left, he uh, was called to be senior minister a few years later. So this was a downtown church. Um, Downtown churches were declining. When he got there, it started growing tremendously when he was senior minister. And the main reason was he was an excellent speaker. He uh, was... uh, he memorized his sermons. He practiced them uh, before, and uh, they were very powerful. They held your attention very well. His uh, 
ministry was cut short, however, by scandal. He left suddenly, and the church, including my parents, uh, suffered greatly because of uh, what he had done and uh, what happened um, in connection with his leaving. So there's a, a warning there, and that's sort of the context I want you to, to keep in mind as we uh, think about this point. There's a warning that uh, mere eloquence in speaking is not really a qualification for being a, a minister, at least not eloquence at the level that I was just talking about. I mean, this man was compared to some of the greatest uh, preachers of the 20th century which I think was overblown, and he was also being compared to liberal ministers. So maybe wouldn't, by Westminster standards, we wouldn't call him a preacher at all uh, because he was mainly talking about social issues. But uh, is, is eloquence or maybe what kind of eloquence uh, is required of uh, the preacher of the word? So that's what this point addresses. That's what uh, plainly is talking about. It's a certain kind of communication and to explain that, I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, we'll read uh, just verses 1 through 5 here. Actually, this whole section of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, chapters 1 through 3, and, and much of the book is uh, connected with a particular uh, topic, which uh, is a little easy to miss because it kind of comes and goes. But one of the contentions within the church in Corinth and one of their uh, contentions with the Apostle Paul was that they heard better speakers than him. He wasn't an impressive speaker. And uh, there were others who contended for that position, and some of them were, were apparently these false apostles. And if you read First and Second Corinthians, you can see, as I said, this comes up every once in a while. But Paul has already addressed it a little bit in chapter 1, but he comes back to it in uh, chapter 2 and sort of uh, meets this, this point uh, head on. So I'll read uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul's emphasis here is on the clarity of his message. That is, he, he's not uh, interested in being impressive in the sense that uh, the Greek speaking and the, the Corinthians with the Greek background would have uh, expected uh, his emphasis and the emphasis in this catechism answer is about being able to preach the word so that everyone can understand from the least well-educated to the best educated. Everyone should be able to understand the message. Uh, it's not about having an impressive display, whether it's uh, impressive language, uh, showing your learning so that everyone knows that you know a lot of stuff or impressive gestures, which is one thing that this uh, this minister and first Methodist in Dallas uh, was very good at. And Paul's point is especially important here. Uh, what's wrong with those things? You might say there's really nothing wrong with them in themselves with that kind of display. But you see, what he says in verse 5 is key. It's that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. So what is the, what is the focus? Is the focus on how eloquent and how powerful a man the speaker is, the spe- how powerful a speaker this man is? Or is it about the power of God? And that, again, is, is so important in terms of his statement earlier in, uh, in verse 2. He determined to know nothing among them but Jesus Christ and him crucified. This message was not about the glory of uh, an individual man, but about the glory of someone who gave himself up, right? whose zeal for the house of God consumed him, who, who was crucified. Not only is the gospel, you might say, central to the message, but it's central to the messenger and the presentation of the message. And this kind of, this kind of ostentation, this kind of uh, show of worldly wisdom, Paul says, in effect, so detracts from the gospel, even in the way it's in the preaching of the gospel, even if the gospel is preached, this kind of demonstration would take away from what's important. And what he says is important is the the demonstration of spirit and power. Now, I think if you read later in chapter two and on into chapter three, he talks more about what he means by the demonstration of spirit and power. He says that we only understand spiritual things by the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit can enlighten us. And uh, so although he may have reference to uh, you know, what we, you know, outward miraculous works, I think he really has in mind uh, principally here, maybe exclusively, that it is uh, the powerful working of the Spirit through the plain declaration of the truth and uh, not uh, men's uh, eloquence or uh, display. I thought I would read a quotation. Uh, This is what Calvin has to say on the passage. Um, He has actually, he talks about it quite a bit because uh, Calvin was trained in the sort of um, classical rhetoric that Paul was talking about and he understood uh, understood the importance of uh, good communication. But uh, after going on for quite a while, I'll try to read sort of his his uh, summary. Um, Calvin says, uh, I reply that the spirit of God has also an eloquence of his own. It shines with a splendor that is natural to it, peculiar to itself, to use a better word, intrinsic, as they say, more than assumed rhetorical ornaments. And he talks about some examples uh, from the Old Testament of uh, those who proclaim the word. And then he says, It follows that the eloquence which is in keeping with the Spirit of God is not bombastic and ostentatious and does not make a lot of noise that amounts to nothing. Rather, it is genuine and efficacious and has more sincerity than than refinement. So that uh, statement of Calvin is uh, not only what he wrote in his commentaries, but actually also the way he preached. It's striking if you read his sermons Here's a guy who he was trained classically. You know, he can impress people with all kinds of quotations. But his sermons are very clear. He uses good, uh, I guess we would call illustrations, although maybe not in the sense uh, that we think of illustrations. It's it's very easy to understand. And you can imagine, you know, the the guys who grew up with him and went to school with him in Paris visiting and saying, you know, this is a joke. You know, you you could be so much impressive in what you say. You could use all these allusions to classical writers. But uh, Calvin's point was he was there to communicate the gospel to the congregation he had as clearly as he could. 
Uh, just one other uh, point on the history, and then um, I'll try to wrap up. I, I warned you that I was going to spend more time on this point. I'll try to make a, an explanation at the end of why I think it's important especially. Uh, this, this statement in the Westminster Directory for Public Worship and the larger catechism is largely drawn from uh, William Perkins. So William Perkins uh, died around 1600. He was one of the early uh, Puritan uh, writers, very influential. And uh, he wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying, which is about preaching. So prophesying, understanding in terms of preaching. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, but uh, much of the language and the idea of what you can see in the Westminster Directory is pretty closely drawn even from uh, this book. And again, I'm going to read just uh, part of it so you can see, uh, I think, better what is in the minds of the Westminster divines when they talk about plainly. He says, the human wisdom must be concealed both in the content of the sermon and in the language we use. The preaching of the word is the testimony of God and the profession of the knowledge of Christ, not of human skill. Furthermore, the hearers ought not to ascribe their faith to the gifts of men, but to the power of God's word. But this does not mean that pulpits will be marked by a lack of knowledge and education. The minister may and in fact must privately make use of the general arts and of philosophy, as well as employ a wide variety of reading while he is preparing a sermon. But in public exposition, these things should be hidden from the congregation, not ostentatiously paraded before them. Then he goes on to list some things that uh, should not be done. Uh, and he talks about none of the specialized vocabulary of the arts, so the rhetorical arts, Greek and Latin phrases, odd turns of phrase should be used in the sermon. He says all of those are just distracting. And uh, it's for that reason that uh, the Puritan plain style sermon, that's, that's what people understand about Puritan preaching. It's it's a plain style sermon. It became a thing, as we say these days. That's, that's the way Puritan preaching was understood. It was there so that people could uh, understand clearly what the word was and uh, apply it to themselves. Now, plain style doesn't mean stiff. So, right, one of the later, we'll get to it, one of the later adverbs involves being fervent. And uh, so... It's not against fervency, but it is against um, the false uh, sort of preaching that uh, Paul is uh, opposed to here, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, let me just say, uh, you know, ask a question. Is this, is this really something we should be concerned about? I mean, I somehow doubt that megachurch preachers are likely to quote uh, Latin and Greek writers or to use eloquence in the sense the Apostle Paul was talking about. So is plain preaching still something that we should uh, be concerned about? And I, I think the answer is yes. One reason I gave the example of uh, my own experience or the church, the experience of the church I grew up in is uh, that was a mainline church, you know, and you might say, well, okay, well, they're not you know, maybe they, they don't really matter to us. But it, I think it is true among evangelical churches. There's still this sort of cult of personality. And many times it revolves around someone being a very good speaker. I mean, there are lots of other things that are required. But, you know, the eloquence may be street talk. Uh, you know, it may, be, it may appear in different ways. 
but the uh, the main danger is exactly what Paul says, uh, warns against in 1 Corinthians 2.5, that our faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So when you, when you think of the attractiveness uh, of a speaker of eloquence, you should always ask yourself, is this consistent in presentation with the gospel of Christ crucified? Are they, are they really sort of drawing attention to themselves in a way that draws attention away from the Savior who gave himself up? You might say he made himself nothing. Well, Paul does say he made himself nothing. So, so why should the preacher act in any other way than pointing away from himself to the glory of God instead of glorying in man? Well, okay. I thought it was an important point. Maybe you should, you know, maybe I shouldn't have taken like 25 minutes on that one because we have other uh, adverbs to talk about. But I, I will let you uh, uh, respond, see if you have any comments or questions. Uh, I, by the way, I realize the irony of uh, talking about not quoting ancient writers, and I just quoted two of them. But this is not a sermon, and no one is likely to think that I'm eloquent, so I think we're okay. Any, any comments uh, or questions so far? Do you get what I'm saying and see see the relevance of this? I guess that's, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent point. And again, the, the point is clarity, um, which you can work on. You can think about how to communicate things in terms that people understand. But you don't have to be the best debater, which is, I think each of us in evangelistic encounters goes away saying, oh, I could have said that. You know, or, I just didn't have the right words. Um, so, I mean, the promise is that the Spirit will use the gospel and not, not our own eloquence. So that's an excellent point. Yes, Dan. There's, there's no question that today uh, there are lots that are drawn to really good speakers. You get huge followings on in churches and in right. social media and so on because we have technology to deliver that yeah. uh, to the masses, to the massive masses now. But you still. There's still a balance here, right? Because our seminary trains men to be good speakers as well. Sure. They're graded on that in their presbytery exams on their delivery. And Danny Proto likes to, you know, he's got his, uh, his book on right. directed. Anyways. So there's still, and that's, I realize it's not being argued otherwise. Maybe we'll get to some of that too, but there's a, it, it, it's good to be claimed, like it says, right? And it's good to also speak in a way that can engage your audience, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for bringing that out. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I could have emphasized that more. I mean, Perkins does talk about that a little bit, but uh, this is not an excuse for lazy preparation or even poorly qualified preachers, which is a good point in terms of. You know, uh, if you ever gone to a, go to a presbytery meeting, uh, you might be amazed as I am at how many comments that preachers make on other people's preaching. And this is right. This is their thing. They're experts in it, and they know what to say. So there, there really is a, 
very great care given at Presbyterian in terms of that. And I think part of the gifts that we talked about last week uh, is the is the ability to speak. It was something that um, would be a basic prerequisite. So thanks for bringing that out. That's good. I haven't gotten to go to many Presbyterian meetings, but I remember when one was hosted here and there was a certain person in our denomination who uh, I think was a very good speaker. And I still remember the comment that he was a piston because of the way he would do this. And he said, kind of like a piston up there delivering the, uh, your, your sermon at the, the Presbyterian meeting. I've never yeah. forgotten that. So. Yeah. He was a very good speaker. Though. He was very good speaker. Good. Dave. One of the items that uh, comes to my mind as I think about this is the, the emphasis put on not just trying to get people to be swept into the emotion and swept into the persuasion uh, of truth rhetoric, but through the plain teaching that a, that a man can be fully persuaded that what's being declared is right. true. It, it, it gets to the other end, down at the, yeah. the bottom, but there, there are encumbrances to helping people become fully persuaded to understand the truth of the gospel. Yeah, that's an excellent point. It does come up later, but since you brought it up, I think it's important to deal with here. I mean, that's, again, one of the distinctives uh, of Reformed preaching is this emphasis that we are we have truth to deliver. It's we do it, and I've made this point before. The emotions are engaged, the, the will is engaged, the whole person is engaged. But um, the the fact that we have uh, truth to convey, and that that's the way the gospel is proclaimed, affects in a crucial way not only the content of the sermon, but the delivery, which is, I think, what you're talking about. And that, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, you know, like criticize other other traditions, but that's certainly one of the reasons for Puritan plain style preaching, because they had something they had to persuade men of. And it's not just propositions, right? It's the very truth of God that transforms lives. So why distract from it with these other things? Is that, yeah, that's good. It's also an antidote to not disclosing the truth of God. The other gifts fall into what have been the Roman tradition, where the sermon is not even central. It's not the right. precise point, but it right. is illustrative of there being more than one gift. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I have one, two, three, four, four more adverbs. So we all do. So let's let's talk about the others and uh, here. Uh, the next one is uh, faithfully. And here there, there are two uh, metaphors that are used for preachers that are really helpful, uh, an ambassador and especially as a steward. I didn't put the reference up uh, there, but 1 Corinthians 4, uh, we are called to be faithful, he says, as stewards. And the, the point there is that the ambassador and the steward isn't there to, to make up his own message, isn't there to uh, communicate what seems to be best, they're there to be faithful to the one who sent them. And that's the idea faithfully here, especially as uh, the, uh, I think the larger catechism sets it out. And that means, uh, well, first of all, they shouldn't seek their own gain, which is what uh, Peter talked about, whether that's in monetary terms or in terms of, of uh, their own uh, position. But it also means that they have to proclaim the whole counsel of God. So... 
uh, Acts 20 verses 25 through 27. So this is a, again, it's you know something. It's sort of a catchphrase in Reformed churches, but it's just part of what it means to be faithful or to preach faithfully. And Melody's got that one. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You see, you see the sense of gravity in Paul's statement. I'm innocent of your blood. Okay, There's this idea that he's an ambassador, he's a steward. He was called to a task, and he said he's discharged it, and he's discharged it by uh, not emphasizing like this one pet point or dwelling on this thing all the time, but declaring the whole counsel of God to them. And one way this shows up in uh, preaching is uh, a lack of partiality. Okay, so there, there are certain topics that you don't want to preach to people about because you know you'll offend them. Like, you know, you might offend the good contributors in your congregation, or you might, you know, offend this important person in your congregation. The faithful steward deals with that and proclaims the whole counsel of God faithfully, um, figures out a way to communicate the truth in a way that will touch on all of those points and uh, does not show partiality in proclaiming the word. I think, again, that's a, that's a very difficult thing, but that's what uh, faithfully involves. So I'm going to maybe talk about a couple of these and see if you have questions. Maybe I'll move on, because the next one is related to that, and that is uh, wisely. So this is a, a very important point and one that we might uh, fail to understand. And to go back to Dan's comment about, you know, the, the person who has, you know, huge crowds, uh, many of them remote, right? Uh, wisely means you know your congregation and you know the best way to persuade your congregation. <laughs> okay? So that means, again, that's the connection of the message with the life of the minister. The person has to know who the congregation is, uh, has to understand, this is what Dave was talking about, that, okay, I, I have a message, I need to be able to persuade people, but uh, knowing people sort of can help you know how best to persuade uh, people. And knowing the needs of the people can also guide you in the sorts of things that you preach on or the sorts of points that you emphasize. Uh, one example of this that uh, the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism gives is a reference. Again, I didn't put up here, uh, but is in Hebrews 5. Remember, we're going along in Hebrews. He's starting to talk about Melchizedek. He, start, he sort of stops all of a sudden and says, you know, I've got a lot of important things to, to speak to you about, but you're not ready for it. Well, okay, so if you think, you know, he knew his, the people who were receiving the message, and he, uh, he still went on and talked about Melchizedek, but he, he did understand uh, who they were in the best way to uh, help them out. Uh, they needed the first principles, he said. They needed them again. So that sort of understanding of the congregation is, I think, in the way of uh, preaching connected with that is what the uh, larger catechism means by uh, wisely. Uh, any comments on those two, faithfully and wisely? I told you I was going to go a lot more quickly on these, uh, but they're all important. Okay. Zealously. Okay, so this is this is the point I was making, uh, you know, that plainly shouldn't be understood out of context if it, as if plainly means like boringly or indifferently, as if, you know, I'm delivering you know, this content to you. 
Uh, a, a sermon is not, as we talked about before, like a download of information from the preacher's head to the hearer's head. And uh, it, that means that uh, the preaching should come uh, earnestly and it should come uh, out of fervent love for God and the souls of the people. So that's, that's what this says, uh, zealously with fervent love to God and to the souls of the people. Uh, I, the sort of thing that Dave brought up, uh, I think, uh, is what I was going to mention here, that Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was certainly a great uh, preacher, probably the greatest preacher, I don't know, of the 20th century, a lot better than the guy I heard uh, growing up, but um, his definition of preaching was logic on fire. And logic there is the sort of thing that Dave was talking about. It's the logic of the gospel. So it's not like abstract logic, but it's, you know, the the desperate need of sinners and the provision in Christ. That sort of logic that men need to be told and persuaded of that they would lay hold on. But it's not like bare logic. It's logic on fire. It's this this uh, fervency which comes from the love of people and the seeking the glory of God that uh, leads them to that. So, you know, just a reminder that uh, people are more willing to listen to a preacher if he knows that if they know the preacher loves them. And that's part of what is communicated in this zeal and earnestness here. Uh, I do want to look at a couple of scripture references here. Um, before we look at specific ones, let me just say uh, Jesus, the chief shepherd, is the chief example of this zeal and love for the glory of God and the good of his people. So John 10, I am the good shepherd. What does that look like? He lays down his life for the sheep and he does it uh, because of the commission of the father. John 17, his prayer to the father, reflecting on his ministry. Again, you can see the love and the communion with the father, but also the love for the people. So that zeal and earnestness is in the chief shepherd and the call is that it should be in the sheep as well. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 19 is a shorter passage. Then we'll look at another one. Yeah. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more easily to see your face and pray for better. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, that Satan be known. What is our hope or joy or controversy? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and his son? So... That, that tender love of the Apostle Paul, the, the grief of being separated from them from a time, and even the ref, reference to the consummation when Christ returns, that they will be his cause of rejoicing. It's, it's amazing. And even if you go back, well, okay, so let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I was talking about Paul earlier and the, you know, Talk about painfully. I mean, you know, First and Second Corinthians, they're kind of painful to read because here's this man who's loved them so much, who's uh, poured out his uh, life for them. And, and uh, you know, I think these other guys are better, these super apostles, and they don't really, you know, they don't really appreciate uh, his ministry. Second Corinthians 5 is, uh, okay, it's a long passage. I'm going to read... This is annoying, I know, but I don't have a lot of time. I'm going to read parts of it to em- emphasize this point of the, the love that motivated the Apostle Paul and the, the fervency and zeal. So beginning at verse 9, Therefore, 
that is in light of the judgment that he's talked about in, in, uh, in the, uh, the end, uh, I should say, rather, of the, uh, of the life and being present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I trust, I also trust, are well known in your consciences. So there's his uh, motivation. He, he knows the judgment to come. So out of his love for God and out of his love for people, he persuades them. That's what motivates him. And then... Um, yeah, it's hard not to read the whole thing, but I spent a long time on painfully, so or plainly. Let me go down uh, to verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's an ambassador, but not an indifferent ambassador. Like, you know, I got this post because I want to hang out in Belgium or whatever. You know, here's the ambassador who pleads with people as though God were pleading through us, imploring them that they would be reconciled to God. So that's, again, you know, just as I said at the beginning on, on plainly, that's, that's the natural consequence of the gospel that's preached. It's shown in the life of the preacher by this desire that others also may be delivered and have that fellowship with God. Okay, uh, just, sorry, moving on quickly then. There's a lot more you could read in between in 2 Corinthians 5, but um, sincerely, the last one. And here there seems to be a good bit of overlap. As I said, the, the Westminster Directory for Public Worship kind of restructures uh, part of this, especially the last part. But uh, sincerely, you might say, means sincere motives. So we read in 1 Peter 5 that it was not out of desire for gain. And again, it may not be wealth. It may be prestige. There are various other things that would motivate us. But sincerely means uh, without hypocrisy. So you're there uh, proclaiming the truth because you believe the truth, because uh, you are living the truth, and because you, again, desire to glorify God and you seek the good of your people. So it's that orientation, which again is really closely related to the zeal, but emphasizes uh, the person's uh, wholeheartedness and desire for God's glory that uh, is, I think, meant by sincerity. So let me just uh, try to conclude this uh, question uh, by reminding us uh, where we started. Well, it was actually in the question before this. Let us. Uh, why do we have preachers at all? Okay, well, it may be, we joked last week, you know, it may be like in the uh, 19th century Church of England because they didn't have anything else they could do. Uh, thankfully, that's not why we have a preacher. But ultimately, the biblical reason we have preachers is that Christ won a great victory. Christ defeated death. Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's poured out the Spirit. And as a conquering king, he gives gifts lavishly. And the chief gift as far as this study goes, not, not certainly not the only gift, but is that he blesses us by giving us ministers of the word. You should think about what it would be like not to have someone to preach the word to you week by week, who knows you, who loves you, who cares for you, 
and uh, then I think you will appreciate, again, this is the grace of Christ toward us. This is, uh, we've been talking about, you might say, the duties of the minister, but behind them is the gracious gift of Christ who uh, loved us and gave himself for us. Okay, so Lord willing, next week uh, we'll at least start on the last question in our study, which is about how we hear the word. So, you know, how we how we apply it and uh, how we prepare ourselves for it and those sorts of things. But um, so you have any comments? And again, I, I'm basically out of time. So if you need to leave uh, to take a break, uh, that's fine. But if you have questions or comments, we'll take those. Dan. I can't really resolve this right now, but I, it still seems to me like there's a tendency to, I don't know if it's from the preaching of the word or the, con- the makeup of the congregation, but diversity is a hard thing to accomplish. Like if you, you have people who like to hear a certain kind of way, I don't know if it's a certain kind of sermon, but yeah, uh, very well-educated people versus people who are not right. well-educated, different people in their careers or moms so it, I don't know it can be difficult sometimes to, s- to see the kind of diversity within the congregation that I don't know seems good no I think that's a that's an excellent point and it's um, I think it's others may have comments on this I think that's part of what knowing the congregation means yeah. is that you use you don't always sort of use the same approach in preaching things um, and yeah but I think that yeah what I wrote at the top of my notes is that preaching is not easy I didn't say that at the beginning and I think that's one of the difficulties uh, I mean those who like teach it for a living like at the university you know you're, in your class you have some really good students and you have some students who really need a lot of help and you have to figure out a way to get them all through and keep them all engaged and that's not exactly what you're saying because it's not just about like ability in a subject, but it's it's what people's backgrounds are. So they they relate more easily to certain things than others. Is that is that what you're getting at? Yeah, and uh, I'm not called to be a preacher. I think so. <laughs> I know I'm not. So I don't know that how exactly you answer that. Is that in Denny's book? <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, that's preacher can't do that, right? I mean, the preacher is preaching to everyone. The unbeliever, the person who knows nothing about the Bible, right? It's got to be something that, uh, and that's actually in the in the plainly in the the Westminster Directory. Um, it's like so that all can understand. Ooh, <laughs> really? Um, and it's not just understand in the sense of like you know I can understand what the words are, but can be engaged in terms of their will and their whole person. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Hope you weren't looking for an answer. <laughs> but you're right, it is, a, it is a difficult thing. Other uh, comments or questions? Okay, let's close in prayer.